Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Welcome to the show. I am very excited about today's episode because we are finally going to really get into a topic that has kind of been something I've been wanting to do for a long time. We have teased it a few times. On previous episodes, we talked about uh, an ant that was manipulated by a fungus. We talked about bees that were kind of manipulated by a fly. We're going to get into all kinds of stuff, and I'm talking about mind-controlling parasites these things are everywhere. It's kind of scary. They exist in the animal kingdom, in the plant kingdom, uh, in the Moneras, the bacteria kingdom, uh, in the protozoan kingdom, the fungus. These things are everywhere, and they they are, have an ability to take over a host, another organism, and kind of tell it what to do that ensures its own survival. It's crazy, kind of scary in a way, because these things can affect humans, and we're going to get into that. Um, but first, let's let's get right into the be- let's start right from the beginning with this. We got We got This is kind of something we have to build from the ground up. Uh, and luckily, I have with me Kathleen McAuliffe, who wrote a great book called "This Is Your Brain on Parasites," and she kind of breaks this thing down step by step and what we can expect, how it exists, the different forms that it takes. So let's get right into this. Now, one thing I, I didn't quite see is what's your background on this? I am a science writer. I actually do have um, a master's uh, in biology. And earlier in my career, I thought I might become a neuroscientist. But oh, then I got a wonderful job, first at Scientific American and then at a series of other publications. So that I have remained in science journalism ever since. So you're kind of like a pre-brain surgeon. <laughs> uh, yes, a very pre, pre, pre. <laughs> Though actually, I never aspired to be a brain surgeon, but a neuroscientist, you know, to study, you know, how the brain works. I don't think I ever thought I had the nerves to be a, a brain surgeon. Right. Well, so that's a great background for this particular topic. I think it's part of the reason I was so interested in it, in yeah. fact. Um, I mean, I am interested in parasites, but I was particularly interested in how this class of parasites that can manipulate the behavior of their host. Right. Um, so why, why parasites? Because i got to tell you, most people, when they think of parasites or they think of the bacteria or even the fungus, the protozoa, all the stuff we're talking about, the worms, people freak out. But you seem to just head into this like straightforward. What, what's the fascination? Where'd that come from? I am just fascinated with nature and you know half of um life forms on this planet are parasitic it's the most common more than half it's the most common existence on the planet so if you want to understand the evolution of life on the planet um you really uh, and how nature works you really have to understand um parasites and yes, they're gross, but I, I can't help admiring some of their talents. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty wild what they can do. Sure. 
Well, I mean, look, it, we're, you and I, we're both human, right? We can admit that. Um, and I think that when you look at human nature, even, there's a lot of parasites walking around. I would argue that the numbers are probably pretty similar. It's about half. And when I see some of the people who can get away with doing absolutely nothing, I, too, like you, am completely astounded and flabbergasted and impressed, to be perfectly honest with you. So you're talking about... Human beings. I'm just saying, like, human beings. Like social they're... parasites? Yeah. Is that where you're so, going with this? <laughs> I, so, well, I'm just saying, like, social... Just, just human beings that are able to live off the kindness of others, uh, the the ability and tenacity that some people do that is pretty impressive and in some ways they also manipulate the mind i'm just saying i like to make this comparison to people because we often forget that we are part of the animal kingdom and we do lots of the same things that other creatures in the animal kingdom the same tactics that they utilize you know what i mean yeah definitely there and there probably are, there are parallels so yeah. There you go. Yeah, anyway, I don't know. I just, I, it sounded like a little rant there. I just thought it was kind of interesting to, to talk about. Uh, so I got to tell you, Kathleen, I don't tell a lot of people this, but I am, I am under the influence of a parasite. And I think hopefully you can kind of talk me through this, but this creature has kind of taken over my mind, and I live solely to protect it. And there are times when I will feed it when I don't necessarily want to. Um, I give it love and affection, and I don't really necessarily think that it deserves it. And of course, I'm talking about my dog. They, the things that we live with, my dog is absolutely 100% a parasite, but yet I love this thing. But in some ways, I don't think we realize that they are a little parasitic. I mean, I think people would make the argument that they're, it's more communalism or mutualism, but um, I, I think it's a parasite. What do you think? I've never thought of dogs as parasites. I'm, I'm more of a persuasion that they're man's best friend. <laughs> what do they give they you? carry some parasites themselves, but... Um, well, okay, what's your definition of a parasite? Maybe you and I differ on our definitions. Okay, well, um, technically speaking, a parasite, I mean, if we use the scientific definition, sure. is... Um, any definition that proves me right is the one we're going to use. <laughs> well, you're going to say the first part proves you right, but yeah. uh, that cannot exist independent of its host. Okay. Check. So technically, it usually lives uh, inside or on the skin of, of a host. Okay. Um, but I guess you could argue that your dog cannot live independently of you. Definitely not. Although <laughs> I would argue that if we let your dog loose in the wild, I had a golden retriever that couldn't have been friendlier and nicer uh -huh. but, um, when my family moved out of the United States we gave we lived in a, a suburb of New York City and we gave the dog to some people who lived in the countryside and the dog then joined um, these other dogs that were kind of running wild and they would start taking down deer Wow! and it became a real problem so you know dogs still have a bit of the wolf in them yeah, your dog did that. Your dog was was it leading the pack? Was it a pack leader? It, was it just? You know, I don't know if it was leading the pack, but it had joined a pack. Wow! And once dogs get join packs, it brings out That's you it. know these instincts, mm -hmm. and it can change them. As they say, it's a very friendly dog; would never attack a human. But right. it, they did start going after deer. Parasite to predator. That's incredible. The, the kind of parasites that I uh, focus on a lot in my book, at least in the first part of yeah. my book. Yeah. are um, uh, 
you know, parasites, the, as I say, they can't live independently of their host. So when I use the term parasite, I'm also talking about um, pathogenic viruses and bacteria, uh, you know, as well as lice, mites, tapeworms, and, and other creatures that most of us think of as parasites. And the particular parasites that fascinated me the most are these ones that can manipulate the behavior of their host. They used to be thought of, um, thought of as fairly rare, you know, novelties, you know, curiosities in nature. But in recent years, scientists have discovered they're much more common than they thought. And um, that, you know, a, a lot of animal behavior may um, actually be uh, reflective of the, the parasite actually manipulating its host. Um, that a lot of animals may not, you know, be operating of their own right. free will on many sure. occasions. Right. And the way I actually came to the story was, um, I think it was back in 2012, I did a, an article for The Atlantic that went viral, and it's about a, um, sorry, a cat parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. It's a, a one-celled um, protozoan that invades the brains of rodents and turns their innate fear of cats into an attraction, and when I say attraction, I mean a sexual attraction. The rodents actually mm. become sexually aroused by the scent of cats, That's so they shame. approach cats, soon end up in their bellies, and as it turns out, this isn't just convenient for cats, but also for the parasite, because it can only replicate in the, in the gut, feline gut, and um, then the eggs hatch in the gut, the, the, the parasite gets shed in the cat's feces and um, then more rodents pick them up from the ground when they're when they're foraging and so the parasite goes round and round but we can also be exposed to the parasite uh, for example when we're changing cat litter boxes that we don't take care to wash our hands and um, what I focused on in the Atlantic article is 10 to 20 percent of Americans have this parasite in their brain and there is mounting evidence, and, and it continues to grow, that in a small percentage of people, this parasite may be uh, causing personality changes um, and a variety of other um, uh, problems. I mean, rec increased recklessness. You know, rodents that are infected behave in a much more reckless way. They're not just sexually attracted to cats, but they, they act in a bolder, uh, foolhardy way. Um, and, and humans who are infected are uh, more likely to be in car crashes, and, um, and they're also more likely to suffer from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, so it does seem that in a small percentage of people, it can, um, it can cause big problems. So with, but with this, um, with, with, toxo, with toxoplasma, right? Right, that's okay, the cat. that's the cat one. So now... How, do we know how exactly that it affects the mice? Doesn't it? Does it jack up their testosterone to make them more bold? Is that kind of what we figured out? Yeah, that's one of the ways. Okay. I mean, it, it's a huge bag of tricks. Okay. Uh, when it invades neurons, um, it it um, causes them to crank up their production of the neurotransmitter dopamine, 
which is involved in regulating how much risk an animal take uh, for a reward, you know, like how much risk take in order to have sex, you know, find a sexual partner and so on. Um, so it increases dopamine in the brain. And, uh, interestingly, in, in schizophrenic uh, patients, um, not infrequently, they have um, elevated dopamine levels, something that has um, baffled doctors for a long time. Um, and, but as you mentioned, this parasite, at least in rodents, it can travel to the testes and, and um, cause them to uh, the cells there to, to produce excess testosterone in females by means that scientists still don't understand. It causes them to bump up their production of progesterone. And um, as you mentioned, animals jacked up on sex hormones uh, tend to, to be cocky and you know, be bolder and take bigger, bigger risks. Uh, and then it actually, through these, this, the various chemical changes that occur, uh, it ultimately, these chemicals travel to the brain and actually cause um, genes in um, the uh, olfactory center of the rodent's brain. It actually changes the expression of some of the genes there in such a fashion that the rodent, when it's uh, when it smells a cat, it mistakes the cat odor for that of a potential mate. So the poor, confused rodent approaches, only to discover it's courting a cat. Right. I mean, this is. I mean, it's really crazy. And again, I'm going to go back to my human comparison thing because you said this can infect humans. And you've, there have been studies that have shown that some of the similar effects can happen in humans. Now, are those, are those pretty established, or is this still kind of in the works? Uh, this is um, a um, very active field of research. Um, there's a lot of research going on at Johns Hopkins, Stanford, uh, um, Oxford, University of um, Maryland, and um, it's, it's controversial, but I think that uh, most experts now agree that um, the infection in some people, and no one knows uh, exactly why uh, it causes problems for some people, not in others, but in some people, you know, it, it is, um, you know, probably screwing up their neuro uh, neurochemistry. Um, for the most part, if you have a healthy immune system, it doesn't cause any problems. We have known for a long time, and everybody accepts this, that um, a developing uh, you know, a fetus or somebody who's immunocompromised, um, it, it can damage uh, the ner nervous system uh, in, the, in those instances. Um, but it used to be thought if you have a um, you know a strong healthy immune system, then the parasite simply it invades neurons, but then it just uh, hunkers down and forms it forms these thick walled cysts in the brain, but never to cause any problems again. Um, but more and more research shows that um, some people are uh, uh, do appear to be adversely affected at least large one large epidemiological study after another. I mean, there have been, I think, over over 28 um, studies of schizophrenia, and um, they sh they pretty consistently show that um, people who suffer from schizophrenia are two to three times more likely 
to have antibodies uh, against the parasite. So wow. suggest that they were infected. And also there's increased incidence of suicide amongst or attempted suicide amongst those who are infected. There was a study done in Europe um, where they keep very good data because all pregnant women are tested for toxoplasma. And across oh, really? 20, mm-hmm, yes, <laughs> wow. when, when they become uh, pregnant, they're tested because, you know, the parasite can damage the fetus. Sure. And there are drugs that you can give pregnant women to reduce that risk. So that's why um, all women in Europe are tested. I don't know why they're not tested in the States, to be honest with you. But needless to say, because of that, they have very, very good epidemiological data. And they mm-hmm. did a comparison across uh, 22 countries. And they found that across those countries, the incidence of uh, suicide or suicidal behavior, you know, people who, uh, you know, uh, were taken to emergency rooms because they were attempting to kill themselves. They found that the incidence of suicidal behavior increased in, dr- in direct proportion to the prevalence of the parasite in each country. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, and I don't want to leave you the impression that it's the leading cause of suicide, but it does appear to be a contributing factor. Right. Well, you know, it's, so it's kind of funny. So let's, let's talk about how, if we think of a human being in as a machine and that the chemicals and the chemical reactions are kind of like the cogs that make the machine do the things that it does. So let's think of it that way. So it's, it's kind of making, it's switching up their mind a a little bit. We move that into human beings. I wonder if, uh, and maybe I'm yeah, maybe I'm going off on a limb here, Kathleen. It's your job to pull me back if I'm kind of making ridiculous claims or, or going into a weird place. But you know, there are certain people, um, men and women, who like you know girls who like the bad boy, or guys who like the girls are not supposed to date, or people who become sexually aroused by doing very dangerous things. Um, is there are the the machinations, the, the the chemical reactions that are going on in those people who like those particular activities? Are they similar to what this this protozoan is doing inside the brain of a rodent? Uh, there, there, I can't, um, I can't tell you. Uh, there, I really would be going out on a limb in terms of um, speculating, but um, I will say this: that um, that's the most fascinating that, thing you've ever heard. That complete your sentence for you? (laughs) Okay. No, that wasn't what I was going to say because you're not Trump. I don't have to butter you up. (laughs) You were thinking it though. (laughs) But no, I mean, I don't think what you're saying is that wild because, um, for example, when it comes to addiction and that applies to sexual addiction, dopamine is very much involved Mm. in any kind of pleasure-seeking behavior. Yeah. So, uh, you know, any sort of abnormality in the dopamine circuits could potentially translate into, uh, you know, a lot of um, sort of troubled behavior, certainly, uh, you know, related to sexual addiction, drug addiction, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And as we know, this, this parasite does uh, jack up production of dopamine in the, in the body. And that can happen in humans, too. That is, sure. that, that is clear. Okay. Um, I'll take that as an absolutely, an absolute yes. Um, so, <laughs> it's a very, it's not an unreasonable speculation on your part. Okay. You're thinking like a scientist. I, I, I try to. Well, because I think, you know, I think that there are some really fundamental things that kind of go on in the mind 
that are, as we learn more about hormones and, and chemicals and enzymes and all these things that kind of make the body do what it's supposed to do, a lot of the same things that you, that your brain does when it does things uh, are kind of similar across the animal kingdom, especially in mammals. And so as we talk about these things, because it's it's really interesting to me how these parasites evolved with the ability to do this, which just makes me think that there must be some fundamental thing amongst, at least amongst mammals. Uh, but but we're going to get into insects. And, you know, in, in our previous episodes, we've talked about um, the, uh, the cordyceps, which which it's a fungus that, um, that attacks ants and causes them to basically... It, takes over their mind and causes them what's what's the thing i learned in your book is that it makes them at exactly solar noon go up exactly a foot on a plant and then sink its teeth in there as this fungus comes out and you know affects all the other ants that's in a previous episode i recommend people to go and listen to that um to either one of the ants episode or the bec- or the um fungus episode and zombies uh z-o-m-b-e-e-s uh, parasites that affect uh, bees and they've you know there's tons of them that affect their mind so it affects all the animal kingdom but my point is I think that there are some fundamental interactions chemical interactions in the brain that these parasites can kind of dial in on and the fact that you mentioned that there's so many of these things when we previously thought that there weren't any so many as a matter of fact that it created a whole new basically biological field called let me see if I get let me see, I'm gonna try this first correct me if I'm wrong Neuroparasitology. Neuroparasitology. Neuroparasitology, which is basically the study of parasitic manipulations. Right. Um, So it's pretty incredible. There's a new field. How do you think that these things evolved to do this thing? Do you think there are fundamental things or do you think that this is a revolution? Yes, you're you're tapping into something critical here. You're very insightful, actually. Thank you. Thank Uh, you. Don't sound so surprised. (laughs) No, I really am buttering you up. I know. (laughs) So tell me, what did you Uh, you find out? Okay, so this is, there is an evolutionary reason. And... Um, you know, so life started out, you just single celled organisms. Uh, and it wasn't until very, very recently in evolutionary terms that multicellular organisms mm-hmm. appear. Mm-hmm. And the first multicellular organisms um, were basically, um, needless to say, not very complex creatures. So one of the f- first, and it, it still actually exists today in freshwater ponds, is the hydra. It's little more than kind of like a, a floating tube. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. some, uh, and earthworms are some of the early organisms on the land. That uh, All of them had gut microbes. Mm. Okay. And that aid in digestion. And, um, and in fact, there is no multicellular life without these gut bacteria. They're called microbiota. So in a sense, we're all, all multicellular organisms are an amalgamation of, um, you know, they consist not just of multicells, but multi-selves, S-E-L-V-E-S. Hmm. Like half oh, wow. of, <laughs> like what you did there. More than half of you is not you. Uh, half of you is microbial. And at most of these cells, not all of them, but most of these bacterial cells are, um, and other microbes are um, stationed in the gut. And early in the evolution of life, gut bacteria transferred a lot of genes to the cells of multicellular creatures. 
And those genes included um, ones that code for neurotransmitters hmm. and hormones and all kinds of chemicals that regulate behavior, which raises a question. If bacteria could produce neurotransmitters, why in the world would they do that? Bacteria don't have brains, right? Right. So why were, long before any creature had a brain, why were bacteria producing neurotransmitters? And the answer is that bacteria actually need to communicate with each other. They are social creatures. Uh, they form, you know, films on, they form thick films like on rocks or, you know, like on your teeth. Well, I, the reason you brush your treat, teeth is because that, of that biofilm. And so they, they, they connect, they, they, they need to be able to communicate with neighboring bacteria. Also, when they discover a food source or there's predators, other bacteria that are, uh, you know, going to attack them or viruses, whatever, they, ha they have to learn to move away from things. I mean, bacteria are a little bit more sophisticated than you might think. And so the, out the chemicals that they use to communicate with each other early in life are the precursors of the neurotransmitters that are in our brain. And these bacteria, um, to this day, maintain a very close connection to your brain. And um, parasites are simply, they're just hacking into the same system. They produce a lot of the same neurotransmitters. They already have the genes that enable them to produce a, a lot of the same neurotransmitters that their hosts have and a lot of other chemicals, hormones that their hosts have. And, and that's why they're so effective in hijacking the behavior of their host. Wow. I mean, that's so interesting because if we, if we kind of extend the metaphor that I used before that human beings are, if we think of them as machines, your brain is the software that these things can kind of hack into that software and, and make it do write new code and make it do other things. That's pretty incredible. Uh, and you know, one, and one thing I wanted to mention is that you, know, you talk about early, early forms of life having, you know, symbiotic relationships with bacteria, but actually that it could go back as early as single celled organisms. Cause a lot of people believe that the mitochondria, which has its own DNA might actually be a bacteria that was incorporated into a lot of cells. So this, you know, what you're talking about could actually extend into monocellular life as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Chloroplast may also have been oh, yeah, yeah. bacteria that became. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this could be going on forever. This could, this could actually be the oldest form of, of parasite. Uh, yes. Yes. Although viruses are, are uh, obviously mm. the very oldest because mm. yeah, yeah. virus cannot live. In fact, some people debate whether a virus is really a living right. creature, yeah, yeah. As, as you may, may know, because a, a virus cannot replicate independent of its host. It doesn't have the machinery, the genetic machinery, in order to replicate itself. So like the very earliest, uh, some of the earliest life, life forms, we don't know what came first, the virus or the bacteria, but hmm. the bottom line is that uh, the virus, uh, these, these bacteriophages is what they're called, they kind of look like little lunar landing modules um but basically they're like you know they're like syringes that are floating yeah. syringes come up to a bacteria they inject their genes and that's all they consist of is genes inject their genes into a bacterial cell and then they use the cell's machinery to 
you know, reproduce more viruses, more viral particles. They just start churning out viral particles that then cause the bacterial cell to explode and releasing all the viral particles. And so they go on their way. So, so yeah, I mean, parasites really tell the history of life on this planet. Yeah. I, you know, and it's funny, not to go off on a, on a viral tangent here, but um, viruses are really, really interesting when you get down to it, because they're exactly like you said, they are almost alien in how different they are. And whether they are actually living creatures is also up for debate. They're, they're pretty incredible, actually, uh, when you get down to it. So I agree with you 100%. Okay, so let's get into some of these examples, because in your book, you go over lots of them. Uh, the book is called Your Brain on Parasites, right? Yeah, This uh, Is Your Brain on Parasites. This is Your Brain on Parasites. And you kind of, you talk about some pretty incredible examples of this. Uh, I mean, if the, you know, if creating, making a mouse sexually attracted to cats wasn't enough, you really come up with some pretty cool examples. What is, what is, is that your favorite example or, or are there others that you kind of really go to? Uh, I do, of course, love that example because, you know, it's a, it's a, a case of a, um, you know, very simple parasite manipulating, uh, you know, a com complex creature mm -hmm. uh like at least mammals like to you know the mammalian brain is thought of as is very complex um but there's so so many examples that i just love um i'll i'll just tell you of a, a few uh there is a flatworm that invades the brains of fish uh the particular fish it's called killifish it's very common on the west coast in freshwater estuaries and when this flatworm invades the brains of fish uh, it changes their behavior. Normally, killifish are, are very anxious creatures that stay deep beneath the waves, but when they become infected, they'll suddenly rise up to the surface and kind of flip over on their bellies and, and exposing their white underbellies up to the sky and all but waving their fins at predatory birds that, that, that swoop down and then pick them out of the water. And, of course, those predatory birds are the parasite's next host. And the way um, the worm... Uh, changes the behavior of, of the fish is it um, is producing a chemical that acts on the same neural circuits as the antidepressant Prozac. Wow. So basically, these fish are healthy in every way. It's just that they're much less anxious. And so they're kind of, they're fish on Prozac. And that's why... <laughs> <laughs> that gets them in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And if you, if they've done field studies, and, and it turns out that shorebirds are feeding almost exclusively on infected uh, fish. So, um, and, and I could give you numerous more examples in nature of this kind of phenomenon, and I will go into a few more in detail. But basically, um, in many instances, it appears that predators are going after low-hanging fruit brought mm. with a reach courtesy of, of parasites. Well, that, I mean, it makes sense because, you know, they're all essentially crimes of opportunity. You know, you, you don't want to yeah. ex exert too much energy into getting a nutrient because you've got to do it all the time. And I yeah, think why, why, why work hard for a meal if it will come to you? Ex no, I, I totally agree. Well, and I think as humans, we forget because if we want a meal, we can go to a restaurant that will give it to you in minutes. But, you know, before you had to hunt your own food and if there was – let's say you were hunting rabbits and there were rabbits that were slower because of a parasite, well, odds are that's what you're going to eat just like anything else in the animal kingdom. So this makes complete sense. 
Right. And the one thing I want to mention is, in case we didn't say it earlier, is that these things manipulate because they that particular parasite needs the next host. So with the cat example, that particular, the toxoplasma uh, only replicates inside the belly of a, of a cat. So it needs to convince the mouse to go get eaten by a cat. And I think mm-hmm. that that's a very important distinction with all of these because they're, the parasite is acting in its own best interest in order to replicate itself. So if I didn't say that before, or, or one of us didn't, I just wanted to make that clear because that's what makes yeah. this so interesting. Yeah, there's another, um, like, a, a, there's sometimes examples where the parasite not only changes the behavior of their host, but they change the appearance too. Mm. So, so an example of that would be a tapeworm that infects um, brine shrimp. Mm. These are tiny little shrimp about the length of my thumbnail. They're sea monkeys. Those are what sea monkeys monkeys were. Yes, that's exactly what they are. (laughs) And they're normally translucent. But when they become infected with this tapeworm, they turn bright pink. And possibly by um, tricking the shrimp into thinking it's time to mate, the parasite causes the infected shrimp to cluster together into these um, thick red clouds, uh, some meter or so in, in width uh, in the water. And then the parasite's next host happens to be flamingos. Mm-hmm. And all the flamingos need do is dip their ladle-shaped beaks into the rich seafood broth at their feet. And they have <laughs> a rich, you know, lovely meal. And, of course, what goes in must come out. The, mm-hmm. the, the birds then shed the parasite's eggs in their in their poop and 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 so it goes round and round yeah that's rich what how do you what do you say that rich seafood broth that's sounds decadent i like that (laughs) great way to describe it but that's exactly i mean that's exactly right and that's the genius behind these things you know and and some of these things you know they're they're a little that that's it's a it's definitely in the interest of the tapeworm but it's also a little passive. There are some more aggressive examples. One, which I think you knew I was going to go to, uh, which is kind of incredible. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. But that's the jewel, the jewel wasp and the American cockroach, uh, which came from Africa, by the way. As I was studying, I learned that. I don't know why it's called the American cockroach. Um, maybe it's just more prevalent here. I just find that very funny. Um, but but how, how, how does this work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about aggressive. Yeah. Be glad you're not a cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. This this um, this wasp um, basically um, just uh, is relentless in attacking uh, the cockroach, the American cockroach. I, you know, I live in Miami and they're, they're really big cockroaches. Mm-hmm. They're bigger than they can be bigger than a mouse, you know, two inches in length. So the brooch actually dwarfs um, the the wasp in size, but these parasitic wasps will um, attack, and the, the, it's quite something to see these uh, cockroaches try and fend off the attack. I mean, they tuck in their heads, and they use their, their arms and legs to try and swat at the wasp. But uh, usually the wasp gets the underhand, uh, over, uh, you know, succeeds and will jab its stinger into the uh, the the cockroach and it basically it um it it's injecting a paralytic agent so that the 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 cockroach will hold still for the delicate procedure to follow the mad scientist (laughs) (laughs) 
it, it will inject uh, its stinger a second time, but this time into the brain. Wow. And it probes and probes and probes until it finds this one tiny center of the brain, less than half the size of a pinhead. And when it finds that part of the brain, it then injects a venom and zaps it. And that, that center of the brain, it's a decision-making center of the brain, so it's basically robbing the roach of free will. And then very nasty things happen because the paralytic agent then wears off. So the, the, the roach can now move about, it can see and hear, and it's otherwise normal, but it lacks free will. So the, the, the wasp can actually uh, walk it like a dog on a leash back to its burrow where unspeakable things happen to the poor roach. <laughs> well, and doesn't he, he bites off their antenna before that, doesn't he? Because I actually, you know, I never thought I'd feel sorry for a big juicy cockroach, but I do. <laughs> well, well, I mean, he chews off the antenna first, right? Don't they, don't they chew off the antenna and then lay an egg inside the cockroach and then bury mm. it and then it becomes a meal for the, for the, for the right. young, right? And that, next, next few weeks, basically, it's young feed on the cockroach, which is fully alive and cognizant and the last part that the the, roach, that the, the parasite kills is the road, is the uh, roach's brain. Well, and it's and it's crazy because I believe now this is obviously a very grisly example, but it, it it's a very fascinating example because there's so many moving parts into the whole process. So while this larva is inside the cockroach, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that it is actually emitting a, a kind of a preservative on the cockroach meat, for lack of a better term, because cockroaches can rot within a day or two and this thing's gonna stay in there for a week. So it's actually kind of, you know, almost like a, like a brine that is, you know, pickling the, the, the meat so that it can feed off it for a week all while the cockroach is still alive. This is, am I, that's correct, right? I know you didn't want to go into grisly details. So I yeah, yeah. The whole idea is to keep this piece of meat as fresh as possible, which is why you even want to keep it alive, you know, yeah. better. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I got to tell you one thing. The, I think that the message of this story is because essentially what these wasps are doing, which is kind of incredible, is taking its stinger and looking for a very specific part, which is they're kind of like the, the brain surgeons in a way. They're the mad scientists of the world. And I got to tell you, if a wasp can do it, I think you can too, Kathleen. I think you. I think you could have been a brain surgeon. You didn't have faith in your skills, but I, I look at this jewel wasp, and it's nothing compared to you. The problem is, I would be very shaky. <laughs> so, so that's that's an extreme example. And one of the other things I want to talk about because that so that's basically, um, you know, that's a, a one way trip. Uh, you know, a lot of insects are doing this, and we're going to get into the spiders before we end because I think that those are actually incredible as well. But one thing I want to talk about is the ability for some of these things to not only manipulate the, how do I want to say this? Um, well, let's give malaria as an example. So malaria is transmitted through mosquitoes. And once it infects humans, it actually manipulates the behavior um, of both of those species, both the mosquito and the person. Tell me how. Uh, well, one of the things that it can do is it can increase um, the mosquito's lust for blood because um, it, it causes, um, gets into the salivary glands of the mosquito and um, basically the, the, the mosquito has to, 
uh, sort of is slowly starving. And so it has to, um, it, it will go, travel to many more hosts in order to get more blood. And uh, another thing that it can do is it uh, can alter the scent of infected people so that they'll be more attractive to other mosquitoes, which, you know, they're like little flying syringes and they come and they suck up the blood of somebody who's infected and then they carry the infection on to other hosts. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, it's manipulating both to basically be one to have a, an insatiable bloodlust and the other to be incredibly irresistible. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of playing both sides of this thing, which is that's the incredible part is this thing had to evolve in a way where it was able to basically be a bystander in the whole thing and be the beneficiary and manipulate two parties against each other. That's pretty evolved. You know, I mean, it's one thing to evolve to manipulate one host, but to be able to kind of play two sides against the middle, that's incredible. <laughs> well, that's what nature's uh, all about. Yeah. <laughs> alliances and... <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Warfare, lots of alliances, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of like what you talked about with gut bacteria, is that, like, you know, you have all of these... Because basically in your gut, there are lots of different um, different types, different things that are different organisms that are doing different things. And they all have to get along. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned in your book is they don't always get along, but they're also, it's an unending, constantly escalating arms race um, to kind of destroy the others and for turf. And, you know, there, there's a whole world going on, you know, in your stomach and in your intestines that's uh, it's pretty crazy and wild and violent. You know, we don't even really think about it. Yeah, and it's it's so complex. I mean, just to give you uh, an idea, um, I, I mentioned that you know early in life, uh, in the evolution of life, that you know organisms, single-celled organisms, produced neurotransmitters. So they uh, they also produce a slew of hormones, including stress hormones. So um, as a result, a lot of bacteria have receptors for stress hormones. Mm. And if we get stressed, we produce stress hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And there are the bacteria in the gut can detect these stress hormones. And they say, ah, oh, my host is, has been weakened. They're under a lot of pressure, whatever. They're not getting enough sleep. They're eating poorly. Their boss is screaming at them, whatever. They're run down. Now's my opportunity to strike. And so there are certain <laughs> bacteria in the gut, most of them are gram-negative, but these bacteria, um, they're normally well-behaved, but they're opportunistic. So under certain circumstances, and when we're stressed, uh, can, it can be one of them, the bacteria will start to madly replicate. And normally, uh, they stay confined in the gut, but when they begin madly replicating, they can also start producing toxins, and they can actually um, start to um, erode the lining of the gut. There's um, the bacteria normally stay uh, contained in a mucus lining, and the, and the gut itself is lined with mucus, which sort of is a barrier that keeps the that normally keeps the bacteria contained in the gut. But the, these toxins enable them to pierce through this mucus layer and and then get into the bloodstream they can um depending on the gut bacteria they can then 
sometimes travel to distant organs, including the brain, but, you know, the lungs, whatever, and they can cause uh, inflammation, you know, immune cells detect mm -hmm. them and start. Uh, so, um, and it can cause a whole series of, of problems. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, our, if we, this is going to be a kind of a, a weird example, but let's say I'm essentially, you think of your body as like being part of the mafia. And so I'm the Don, like I'm, I'm running things and I'm keeping everything under control, but every, you know, soldier and Lieutenant, every bacterial, you know, kind of colony and species in there wants to take over. And as soon as you let your guard down, they'll strike, you know, and once you die, one of them's going to take over by dissolving your body. You know, I mean, it's, it's a constant state of, you know, trying to reach equilibrium and keeping all these things in check. Um, you know, but like you said, once, you know, if you show weakness, a lot of these organisms will jump at the opportunity to increase their size and territory and all that. It's, it's pretty but, crazy. But the good, the good news is there, there are many good bacteria and they, and they outnumber the bad ones considerably. Right. <laughs> and they help to keep them in check. And, you know, a lot of these um, bacteria, I mean, there's some that I think help to lower anxiety, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might uh, someday be harnessed, uh, you know, for the treatment of um, depression. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have, uh, there's certainly, um, they, they're important in the regulation of your appetite, uh, you know, in telling um, your body when you've had enough to eat. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they're beneficial, but they're, it's a mistake to view them as necessarily altruistic because, right. uh, I mean, for example, there's bacteria. If you're a chocolate lover, which I am, I love dark chocolate. So do I. Uh, research has shown that you're more likely to have a particular bacteria in mm. uh, your gut. And, um, and it's possible, this is speculation, but, you know, that, that bacteria wants to be fed. So it's possible I think this is not unreasonable speculation. I know scientists have, have also similarly speculated that, um, you know, your chocolate craving is this bacteria making its mm. will known, you know. Right. So now is it good? I mean, actually, chocolate's supposed to be good for you. But on the other hand, if you have a weight problem, is that, is that a, right. you know, is that, do you view that as a parasite or do you view it as a, as a good bacteria? Right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, well, everything's out for itself, you know. And like you said, they're not altruistic. I mean, of course... They're going to be doing what's beneficial for them, and occasionally your objectives line up, and then you can kind of team up. So if you like dark chocolate and you don't mind having a craving, you can team up with this bacteria, and you can it can make you desire the chocolate, and you can give it some chocolate to say thanks. You know. And the good news is that uh, these gut bacteria, you know, have a stake in our survival. Right. <laughs> so you know, most of them want to keep us the alive. Keep us alive. Uh, they want to keep us alive and keep us alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, long term. <laughs> sure. So, so that's the good news, and um, there's a, a, quite a bit of evidence now that the first um, bacteria to colonize the gut after birth play a big role in how the brain actually wires together. Because mm. I think you talk about like a, a an experiment. There you go. That's the word I'm looking for. In um in mice, where this happened, and there's like a, a very delicate four week period, right? Yeah, early early in life, when um they they the chemicals I guess produced by gut bacteria, uh 
are uh, absorbed in the bloodstream or there's a, a variety of routes. There's a, a, a vagus nerve that connects the gut to the brain. Um, but anyway, there's a variety of routes by which they communicate to the brain. And it's these signals that um, the, the brain detects, picks up, and, and it uses that information to build your brain. And probably the reason it does that is because it's getting information about the, you know, level of stress the animals under, the abundance of food mm -hmm. sources, and so forth. Uh, so it's it's using this information. Uh, one of the things we do know is that if you know, scientists can raise um, animals in completely um, under completely sterile conditions, so that they have no gut bacteria, and um, rodents with born without gut bacteria are positively weird. They are <laughs> unequivocally <they're>, weird. <laughs> yes, unequivocally <laughs> weird. They are slow to learn you know, like how to run a maze, quick to forget. Mm -hmm. uh, they lack natural curiosity. You know, most rodents, you, like you put some something new in their cage, like a, a napkin ring or whatever, and they'll, you know, circle it and sniff it with great interest. Well, these, um, these, these rodents without gut bacteria don't sh display this sort of natural curiosity. They are stunningly devoid of fear, uh, they think nothing of wandering into bright open spaces and um, wide open spaces and, and brightly lit areas that scream danger to the average rodent. Um, they don't even um, display distress when separated from their mothers, you know, whose nurturance they depend on for their very survival. They, they display no distress. Um, but if you colonize them with the normal um, complement of bacteria for that strain of rodent, but it has to happen early within the first few weeks of life, then their behavior will completely normalize. But if the colonization happens later, then they they remain weird, weird. pretty much forever. <laughs> Scientifically speaking, they remain weird. Yeah, yeah. They, they. So it's it's critical. I mean, and you you think about it. Um, these um, bacteria play a role in sort of um, fine-tuning how the nervous system works based on the world that you're going to that you know that you're going to have to inhabit. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty incredible when you, I mean that's the ultimate act of manipulating your brain. I mean, creating like a super information highway, uh, or at least perfecting it uh, from the you know the gut nerve to the to the brain. Uh, and, and even aiding in brain development. I mean, like it's it has a say in the infrastructure that it is going to manipulate later on. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And again, if you think of how life evolved, it makes a lot of sense because um, the, um, the the gut bacteria, the gut itself, digests and predates the evolution of the brain. Creatures had guts mm. before they had brains and the first nervous systems um or at least one of them the first nervous systems um both began the, in, in the in the body not in the head but right. the first nervous systems um one of them is called the, the precursor of what's now called the entric nervous system which is a thick a skein of nerve cells that runs the entire length of the gut and has more neurons than your spinal cord hmm. 
And this nervous system regulates digestion. And the brain actually evolved as a sort of distant outpost of um, this, <laughs> the, the, the gut nervous system. Huh. So, yeah, you can be sure yeah. that the brain uh, is relying on information from the gut in, in determining how it wires itself together. And um, just to emphasize that point, there's now um, research um, done actually at UCLA by um, scientist, his name is Emron um, Mayer, but they found that they can actually um, predict what gut bacteria are, you know, blossoming inside you based on an MRI of your brain. Wow. So, for example, the, um, the volume of your um, volume and density of your gray matter and the, um, the thickness of these, um, the white um, nerve tracts that connect different parts of the brain, these relate to gut bacteria, um, you know, they can, they can see correlations. Wow, that's, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, not only that it exists, but that we are able to detect it with an MRI scan. Yeah, I was blown away by that. Yeah. I couldn't believe that either. <laughs> that's really incredible. I mean, because that takes, I mean, there's a, a lot that goes into that. Um, yeah. Wow, because, I mean, in, in, you mentioned in the book uh, that your microbiome is almost like a fingerprint. So the, the exact, you know, make and basically making numbers of your gut bacteria are unique to you based on your right. life, basically, um, right. which is incredible. And that would make sense that that it would be detectable in some way. I just didn't know that we'd crack that nut yet. Right. But it's interesting because once the brain then is wired together, I mean, you can live without gut bacteria for, you know, uh, brief periods of time um, under experimental conditions, probably for long periods of time, but that you'd have to be in a completely germ free environment, etc. But so it's critical in terms of how the brain wires together. Um, and I'm sure these bacteria play a critical role in maintaining how the brain works, but their biggest and most important role is, is early in life. Um, so, you know, consider if you get a colonoscopy, you have to take all of these purging agents that, you know, flush most of the bacteria in your gut out of your body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a day or two, you know, you're, you're fine without them. But, you know, you can't go very long without them before you start to, you know, fall apart right. I mean, in all, in all kinds of different ways. For example, um, you can't really digest many nutrients properly. So uh, that's another thing about um, animals without gut bacteria. Um, you know, you, they're um, usually emaciated mm. and yet they eat and eat and eat. You know, there'll be a, I can show you a, 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 a mouse with normal gut bacteria and it will be nice and plump. Um, and it, it eats, you know, twice a day. And then I can show you an emaciated rodent with no gut bacteria at all. And it's eating nonstop and it's consuming many, many more calories than the plump guy. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it can't extract them from the food because we use gut bacteria to break food down into metabolites that our bodies can absorb and we rely on them to make various nutrients. And then we rely on them to help to, I mean, even though it's early in life that has the biggest impact on how the brain functions, the, you know, the, the 
the, our bacteria are constantly breaking food down into um, various metabolites, many of which are neuroactive, psychoactive, and affect the brain as well. Um, and I, we're not exactly sure of how this works, but you know, when people go without food for a long time or deprived, you know, on a really, really draconian diet, they usually get depressed. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, a lot of studies when they've kept people on draconian diets have had to end them because for ethical reasons. <laughs> wow. A study with, you know, grown men who were fine at the beginning of the study, but they were like bursting into tears and crying and wow. inconsolably. And it was because they were kept on this very, very low caloric diet. And I'm sure it completely screwed up their, you know, neurochemistry, their serotonin levels. Um, wow. Well, I mean, it's, they, so they do, they do more than just basically make your gut and absorbing your digestive system more efficient. Like we think of them as kind of doing that as, you know, allowing us to absorb more nutrients and break down more food. But there's, they play such a more vital role, which I didn't know until I read your book. It's very incredible. Yeah, and they also um, interact with your immune system. And um, basically when you have an infection – uh, it's part of a protective mechanism. Um, for example, when you spike a fever, um, most people, and, and you feel lethargic and you can't stay awake and you go to bed, um, th that's the immune system that's that's causing that sense of lethargy. And it's the immune system that's raising your temperature. In fact, scientists can, they call it, um, I've forgotten the term for it, but fever behavior mm. is what just refer to it as, um, but um, you can induce fever behavior simply by injecting a perfectly healthy animal with immune components, like cytokines. Mm -hmm. You can, they'll, they'll, they'll spike a fever, the rodents that normally would love running around in their cages will suddenly just lie down and, and go to sleep. And so um, when you have a low-grade infection, you lose you, you you're not you don't you become depressed and you you suffer from low energy and and that is because your body is trying to marshal all of your resources to raise your temperature because if you raise your temperature you can cook the microbes mm. microbes only live within a narrow temperature band so the body is your immune system is intentionally raising your temperature to kill those microbes to cook them but it's incredibly, incredibly energy intensive to do so. And so what what happens is the immune system says to your brain, you gotta tell this animal to stop, you know, moving about, mm -hmm. stop searching for a mate, stop foraging for food, in fact, stop digesting it because that, even that <laughs> requires energy. Right. And shunt all of that energy towards fighting this this microbe or you're not going to live to see another day right. so that's what happens but when you have gut bacteria that are misbehaving and are causing chronic low-grade inflammation it can cause depression and completely drain you of your energy and and it that's part of the reason why i mean it makes perfect sense i, I gotta tell you this is it's incredible to think, you know, after reading your book, I got it. It was almost unsettling in that I wasn't sure if I was in control of my own actions. You know, there are so many different things going on that whole world that you open my eyes up to 
that I don't think I realized was going on. So um, I think that, that's a that's an incredible place to end it with that mind blowing experience. The do you have? We didn't get to the orb spiders and the parasitic barnacle. Do you have ten minutes that we can talk about that, like in a little extra thing? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, I particularly both of those are, are some of my favorite examples of parasitic yeah. manipulation. So I'm more than happy to okay. do that. So okay. let, let's talk about the parasitic barnacle. That's actually one of my favorite. Uh, okay, so that's a this is a great place to end it. Um, the name of your book, This Is Your Brain on Parasites, uh, I'm assuming people can find this anywhere, and if, if this has really struck a nerve with a particular strain of bacteria, they'll be kind of forced to go buy it anyway, right? I, I wish bacteria <laughs> could buy my book, and it would definitely help to boost sales. There's a lot more of them than people. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, do, so are you, uh, do you have a website? I do. It's www.kmcau. L I double F is in Frank E dot com. Well, I will put a link to your website. Thank you for talking about this and opening my mind to how bacteria can manipulate human beings, animals, insects, the entire world. So thank you, Kathleen. It's my pleasure. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com if you want to listen to past episodes, learn more about this guest, or if you want to check out the show on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube links all at the bottom of the fascinatingnouns.com webpage. And if you like what I do there, you, I have tons of other projects going on. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to see what else I'm up to. And that includes my new podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I sit down and talk to a rocket scientist, a physicist, and a biologist, and we take all your favorite science fiction and superhero technologies and science, and we break it down and tell you how you could make these things in real life, if they're possible, how we can make them possible. It's a great show. You can also go to www.fgg, that's gggbt.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.